On this Easter Sunday morning, we read the Word of God in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow, and for fear of him the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. And now what follows to the end of the chapter happens later, at the very end of Jesus' appearances. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. That's how far we read the Scripture. And now before I read the text, I want to ask you, what in the events of the first Sunday most people would forget to list if they were to make a list of everything that happened on that day? Probably even the children in school would be able to get most of them. Of course, they would start with saying Jesus rose from the dead. And he didn't go out the door. He went up through the rock, as it were, because he was now living a glorified life. No one would miss that. 
everyone would remember the fact that the women met, as it were, at a carpool lot somewhere in the city to go together to see the sepulcher. No one would forget either that the guards who were watching the tomb were startled like no one had been startled when they saw the angels and they fell down in a dead faint and then got up, scrambled to the city, reported to the authorities what had happened, and they concocted the cover-up that, as the passage we read, was the story commonly reported among the Jews. We would all remember that Mary got to the tomb first, and when she saw the stone rolled away, immediately turned around to go back to tell Peter. The other women went in, saw the angels, heard the gospel, and believed. And whether we have all of this in the right order or not is another matter because the Gospels don't make it absolutely clear. We know basically what happened. Peter and John then came running. John first looked into the tomb. Peter not. But both of them believed. Believed. We know the fact that Jesus appeared to Mary. And Mary wanted to hold him, but he wouldn't permit that, even though he had permitted the other women to lay hold of him in great joy. We all probably would remember the events of the later part of the day when Jesus appeared to two who were traveling to Emmaus, talking together about what had happened earlier in the day. And Jesus asked them as though he didn't know, and they explained some of the events of the day. And then when he showed himself to them, They went back to Jerusalem, met with some of the disciples without Thomas. Jesus appeared to them. Many of them believed and so forth. We would have a list of probably six or eight or ten things that happened, but most of us would forget this one. This one. During that day, though it's not recorded in Matthew 28, and in fact it's not recorded anywhere else in the Bible, during that day, Other dead people came out of the grave, and just as Jesus appeared and said, I'm alive, not dead, they appeared and said, I am alive, and I am not dead, because I am united to the one who lives. That record of that event is not found in Matthew 28, but right before Matthew 28 in Matthew 27, which is our text. So turn with me to Matthew 27 and read a part of the history of the crucifixion. We'll begin reading at verse 50. The text is the end of verse 51 through 53. Matthew 27, verse 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and now comes our text, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared 
unto many. Look at that text. The graves were opened by an earthquake. The bodies of the saints which slept, striking expression, the saints who slept arose and they came out of the graves and notice this, after His resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. Add that to your mental list of what you know took place on Resurrection Sunday. It wasn't just Jesus who appeared to say, He lives. It was saints who also rose as a testimony that everyone who is in Jesus will also live. And that's what I want to preach on briefly on this Resurrection Sunday morning. When graves open on this Easter Sunday morning, saints arise. It's a shocking sign. That's the first thing we need to call attention to. In the second place, it has a twofold significance. And then in the third place, the blessing of this sign is restricted to some. So it's a shocking sign. It has a twofold significance, and the blessing is restricted to some. When graves are opened, saints arise. Now, Think about this. The facts of the sign are very simple, but they're utterly amazing. Right at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, at the very moment Jesus died, right when the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom, there was a great earthquake. A great earthquake. When Jesus died, that earthquake opened up the earth at strategic points where God designed it to open up the earth and exposed in a sight for all to see, but they probably didn't because this was at the very end of Friday evening, afternoon, when the Sabbath began, the graves were opened and in a sight for anyone to see if they would go to the sepulchers were the bodies of dead people. And then they lay there all of Friday night, which is the day prior to the Sabbath. The Sabbath began at 6 p.m. Friday. And all of the Sabbath on Saturday, when everyone stayed home, no one was to travel, no one was even to walk farther than a certain distance, so you can be sure very few would visit the tombs of their loved ones. All day Saturday, the Sabbath for them, those graves lay open, and on Sunday morning, when Jesus arose from the dead, after His resurrection, the text says, they arose from their graves. What an utterly amazing, shocking reality. I wish often, and don't you wish often too, that the Bible would tell us more about certain things that our curiosity is so piqued with? What happened? How many? What did they say? How long were they out of the tomb? Did they go back into the tomb? What kind of bodies did they have? Did they rise from the sepulcher only by where Jesus 
was buried or because Jerusalem was a large city, were these sepulchers and cemeteries scattered throughout the city where saints arose from many of them? Did the people recognize them? I think we'll have an answer to that. Were these recently dead saints? Or were these saints who had died a long time ago? There are are dozens of questions that we would like to ask but simply don't have answers to. But that's okay because the Word of God gives us much material here to study and see so that we're aware that this is an utterly shocking reality that has wonderful significance for His people, devastating significance for those who aren't believers, And so let's look at them. There are six elements in the sign that the text brings out. In the first place, there was an earthquake. A great earthquake by which the graves were opened. Now remember, there were two earthquakes at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. We read about one that happened on Sunday morning. There was a great earthquake. We just read that. But on Friday that preceded Sunday, there was an earthquake also right at the time that he died. Now, earthquakes in the Bible are symbols. They're signs. And they're signs of God's judgment upon the earth and the removal of everything that's temporary in order to make room for and make way for that which is new. That's uh, an earthquake. The judgment of this world in order that there may be renewal for the salvation of of God's people. It's the victory that Jesus has that's being signified here. He's going to shake the world in order that everything that can be shaken is removed and what can't be shaken will remain. I use the language of Hebrews. If you turn to Hebrews 12 with me and see that the apostle there spoke exactly that way. When at the end of chapter 12, the apostle warned the people not to refuse him that speaks. Verse 25, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. And then this, whose voice then shook the earth. And that's a reference to God revealing Himself to Moses at Mount Sinai. The voice of God then shook the earth. But now He hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. That's an earthquake. God taking hold of the earth, as it were, and shaking it. And if you've ever felt an earthquake, you feel as helpless as ever. Here in Michigan, we can hide in the basement from a tornado. When you live in a vicinity of an earthquake, you can't hide. There's nowhere to go. You know, you know that that's a sign of the end. And that's why one of the primary signs of the coming again of the Lord Jesus is earthquakes. It wasn't very long ago in Redlands where I grew up and my parents lived, and some relatives still do. You know some people there. 
that on a Sunday morning there was a great earthquake and the little in-ground pool in my parents' backyard shook so much that it lost a large amount of the water in the pool. And in the church, this was Sunday morning, someone must have been there, the chandeliers were swaying such that the elders decided to cancel the service. And when in the evening they had the service, no one sat underneath those chandeliers, big circles of vacant seats, because they all understood what might happen. Earthquakes do that. The earthquake is a sign of God's judgment on everything that must be removed in order that there may be room for that which cannot be removed, eternal spiritual realities. It's the testimony of the victory of God and the destruction of God's enemies. And it's by that earthquake that graves were opened. Now the cemeteries in those days were not like the cemeteries of our day, at least in Michigan, where there's a nice neat grass field and a machine comes and digs a nice hole into which is put a concrete vault, into which vault is put a clean coffin on the top of which a cover to that vault and then the dirt covering it again and grass and a gravestone. We call that an honorable Christian burial. The graves in Jesus' days were not like that. They were more caverns, some of which would hold more than one body. You think of the cave of Machpelah that Abraham bought to bury his wife and his descendants. And you think of Jesus' tomb, the Bible says, that was recently chiseled out of the rock for him to be placed in, probably one tomb for him. But you can imagine other caves in the sides of hills where inside the caves were many nooks where bodies were laid. And some were more artificial than that. Perhaps there weren't sides of hills, but a large area where they would, over top of, put large stones but many different ways in which the people were buried. And when Christ died and the earth shook, the ground literally ripped apart. It's as though the hands of God came down and opened up the earth at strategic places. The very same word is used in our text that's used in the description of the rending of the veil of the temple. There you've learned in catechism, children, that not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom, that veil, probably three inches thick, was torn. And that was a testimony that God was abolishing the old ways of worship. They didn't need to go to the temple anymore. They weren't going to sacrifice sacrifices and shed blood any longer. Christ came to abolish those old ways. The temple was ripped by the hand of God. And now our text says, with that same word, the earth was rent, ripped, opened up, and the bodies of the dead saints were exposed. That's the first element of this shocking sign. The second is that they arose. They climbed out. Their bodies did. And so be very clear as to what this is a reference to. This is not a reference to their souls coming alive at this point. 
but a part of the resurrection that will be completed at the end of all ages when our bodies will come up out of the grave. The foreshadowing of what's going to happen when Jesus appears and the general resurrection take place, takes place when everyone who's been buried will come from the dead. The just and the unjust. Everyone. And that's why the text says that bodies came out to emphasize the fact that these were the dead whose souls had already gone to heaven and their bodies lay resting in the grave. Sleeping, the text says. These bodies now were made alive And now we enter into an area where the Word of God does not make clear, but we imagine very likely bodies reunited with their souls came out of those graves and walked, lived, saw, heard, spoke, smelled. And this, therefore, is very likely their final resurrection for them. And these saints join the other two who we always think of when we think of whose bodies are already in heaven. Enoch, who is translated that he should not see death. And Elijah, who was brought to heaven in a fiery chariot. He didn't die either. If someone asks us, Who's in heaven without having died? We think Enoch and Elijah, but we forget these many saints. In their bodies came out of the grave. You don't imagine that God had them climb back down into those graves, do you? Or you don't imagine that God would require those who had already died, whose souls were in heaven, that they now would live on this sinful earth again and have to die again, do you? And it's for those reasons that though the Word of God does not make crystal clear that truth, I judge this to be their final resurrection in their body. First, an earthquake. Second, dead saints arose from the grave. And third... The Word of God says many arose. Many. Now this wasn't the general resurrection when everyone is raised from the dead. But neither is it a few. Three isn't many. Five isn't many. A dozen isn't many. I don't know how many is many. But the Word of God emphasizes many, many. And that's what you need to be thinking about today. Not just a couple, but many came out of the grave and began walking and seeing and speaking and hearing throughout the city. Many. And then in the fourth place, the text says that it was saints that arose. This wasn't a random resurrection. It's not the case that wherever the graves happened to be cracked open, because things just happen in the minds of some people, No, these were graves that were opened that held saints. That is, people who were notable for their godly living, for their piety, for their hope in the coming of the Messiah. And when someone has hope 
in the coming of the Messiah. They live in holiness. And that's why they're described as saints. They want to be like Him. Read the epistles to John in the end of the New Testament. And you'll see that. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies Himself even as Christ is pure. These were saints. So that if the people could have gone... And we don't know whether they did or not, but if they could have gone around to those sepulchers, maybe had seen the gravestones and identified who was in those graves, they would have found a pattern. Oh, perhaps they said, she and he and he. There's something familiar here. It wasn't the Pharisees, it wasn't the Sadducees. It wasn't any chief priests. It was the Simeons and Annas and Zacharias's and Elizabeth's and John the Baptist's and those, the Word of God says, who were saints, that is, devoted to the things of the kingdom. They loved God and they loved God's Word and they waited for the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. They appeared appeared. That's the fifth element of this sign. Was it a miraculous appearing like the appearances of Jesus? So one day he was just here, and a moment later he was far away here, that he didn't need to open the door but just appeared to them? Perhaps, perhaps. The Word of God says they appeared. Where? Many places, many saints, where? Where do you gather for coffee on Monday morning? Imagine the possibility of a dead saint appearing there. Where do you go to shop at the grocery store or the mall? There were gathering places, synagogues, courtyards of the temple how many people weren't there in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover feast still visiting family coming together to buy food and drink and visit with family and relatives they hadn't seen they appeared appeared why isn't more written about this we ask well because as John says at the end of his gospel narrative many more things than this happened but these were written that you might believe and that's all You don't need more. Our curiosity certainly is there, but you don't need more than this. And earthquakes, bodies came out, many that did. They appeared, saints appeared. And all of this took place after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Not before, after. And the text makes a very important point of that so that we never say, first the saints... And then Christ. No, it's always first Christ and afterwards those who are Christ at His appearing. That's the order. Now that's going to be the order at the very end of time in history when Christ appears. Because first Christ arose from the dead and then we may. And when when that is prophesied, and this is a prophecy of that, that's the order too. On Easter Sunday morning, all of those saints who had passed away and were sleeping, were waiting, waiting 
And when Christ arose from the dead, afterwards they who were Christ's arose also. That's the shocking, utterly amazing sign. You see, it's that connection between Christ and the dead saints that's so important with regard to the significance here, the twofold significance. And in looking at the significance, we mustn't look only at Easter Sunday morning, what happened to Christ, happened to these dead saints, but we need to go back into the history of the Passion Week on Friday and connect the resurrection of Christ with the death of Christ and say that the resurrection never could have happened had the crucifixion never taken place. Or to be more positive, the resurrection took place exactly because of the cross. So never separate the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Never try to divorce the payment that He made for sin with the reward that we receive or united to Him. The cross first and then the resurrection. Payment for sin. Satisfaction of the justice of God. Then life and life abundantly. You see, the cross always prepares for the resurrection. And the resurrection is always the completion of the cross. The cross is meaningless apart from the resurrection. You understand that, but what you might not understand is that the resurrection is not possible apart from the cross. And so it wasn't just convenient for the writer of Matthew who when he came to chapter 27 and described what happened at the cross and the earthquake and the opening of the graves, it wasn't just convenient to say, because there was no other place to write it, and they arose and appeared in the city to many, by the inspiration of the Spirit, it was put there in order that we might see the tie between the cross and the resurrection. Always see that tie. And that helps us see that the cross isn't defeat after which there is victory. Don't ever look at the cross that way. Look at the cross this way. The cross is the victory for us. Or the tool by which we receive the victory. And the victory is life. That's what's going on here with regard to the significance. Tie the cross to the resurrection. And when you do that, you're going to see that just as the cross has a twofold significance, you're also going to see that that twofold significance comes out here too in the resurrection. Because it's not all good news. In the cross is the judgment of the world. And in the resurrection of these dead saints is the judgment of the world also. Think about that for a moment with regard to the enemies of the Lord Jesus. How this must have been devastating to them, horrifying to them, terrifying to them. In the first place, the resurrection here 
makes a separation between holy and unholy, between saints and evildoers. There wasn't any part for the unbelievers in this resurrection, and they knew that too. They were all Israel. That is, they were all of Israel, but they weren't all Israel. Those cemeteries were filled with descendants of Abraham. They all could make a connection between them all the way back to Abraham. We are the sons of Abraham. And they lived saying that, and they died confessing that. We are the children of Abraham. And when they died, they were buried, maybe very near where Abraham was buried. They were all members of the church, but those who raised, whom God raised from the dead, were not all. They were the saints. As I said, they were the members of the church that were pious and notable for their piety. And so if the gossip must have gone around at the coffee shop or the grocery store or some other place of public gathering, they must have asked, well, who was it? And the answer for some of them was, none of your people, none of your kind. It was the Zacharias's and the Elizabeth's and the John the Baptist's with whom you would have nothing to do because you thought they were goody-goodies, as it were, too pious, overmuch righteous. They're the ones who were raised from the dead. And that same truth comes out for us too. The promise of the resurrection is not for all of you. You're all members of the church. You all go by the name Christian. You're all here attending worship. You're all of Israel, as Paul puts it in Romans 9. But you are not all Israel. Truly Israel. Those who are truly Israel are not here because their parents require them to be here, or because their friends are here, or because this is the only place they have a social life. The resurrection of the dead is not for those who outwardly confess the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection promise is for the saints who today hope for the coming of the Lord Jesus with eagerness. And because they think about the coming of the Lord Jesus and are eager for the coming of the Lord Jesus, they want to be holy as their beloved Christ is holy. And so they're pious and notable for piety. Saints, not unbelieving, who have no interest in being saints. And then the negative significance in the second place is, what a testimony this must have been to those unbelievers. What a powerful testimony. Think about that. We don't have time anymore to go through everything I'd hoped to say, but just imagine the public vindication of the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ that took place, not only when Jesus made His appearances known, but when all of these saints began appearing, a public vindication of the righteousness of the cause of the one whom they worshipped and believed and followed. He was right, and you were wrong. He's from God, as He said. And you were wrong when you said, he has a devil, and he's from Beelzebub. 
He's the Son of God as He claimed, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And you crucified Him. A public vindication of the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the terror that was generated in the city of Jerusalem on the same day that the soldiers had come back to report that He's gone and we couldn't do anything about it. And angels appeared the same day that they concocted that cover-up and thought everything is good now. Now appear not one living, but many. Think about that. This is the end of Passion Week. What happened on Monday before the Friday when Jesus was crucified? Well, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and that was the last straw for the leaders of the Jews at that time. And so the high priest of that day made a statement that was prophetic beyond what he ever imagined it would be. One man needs to die for the nation. And he meant, let's kill this man, Jesus, so that we can preserve our leadership. One man needs to die. And at the end of the week, they did. They killed him. Ah, they said to themselves, we're finished with him, finally. He raised Lazarus from the dead. That was bad. Let's get rid of him And that won't happen anymore. And now it's not one Lazarus who came out of the grave as a public testimony of the power of Jesus and the righteousness of His cause, but many come. You kill one, many arise to take His place. What a powerful testimony of the righteousness of the cause of God. Now, use your imagination, but less so this time. Coffee shops, malls, restaurants, they didn't have just what we had, but you can use your imagination to imagine the kinds of places, but now this takes less imagination. Who may it have been that came out of the grave, but someone like the beheaded John the Baptist? is living now, beheaded because he made a testimony of the sin of Herod. And on Sunday morning, Herod hears a knock on his door. And there stands John the Baptist. He didn't need to say a thing. Nothing. Caiaphas. Pilate, the high priests, the people who were at the cross saying, let his blood be upon us. They didn't need to say anything. Their appearance was a sermon of the awful judgment of God upon those who opposed the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle says that Christ makes an open show of His enemies. Read in the book of Colossians chapter 2. That's what He did. The enemies made a public spectacle of Him, shamed Him. And now He returns in His saints and makes a public spectacle of all those who opposed Him. But that's the negative significance Very important to see. But the positive significance, people of God, can you imagine? 
Put yourself in that place now. Put yourself in that place now. You're not of the chief priests and the Pharisees. You don't hate the cause of God. You love it. You love Jesus. And then everything falls apart. Your loved one dies. And you bring him to the grave or her. And then worse than all of that, the one you loved, Jesus, is crucified and is buried. And you say, let's just go back to fishing. It's not use. It's not worth doing anything that we've been doing. They were full of hopelessness. And then, on Sunday morning, appears to you the saint that you had buried. This is not dramatizing. This is reality. The saints appeared in Jerusalem to many as a testimony, not first of all, and certainly not especially, that you who are enemies of God need to know that His cause is true and yours is not, but is especially for us in our times of despair and hopelessness. What use is there? What use is there? Our loved ones are gone. And here in the Word of God for you is a testimony. They're going to live. They're going to live. Soon I, as we sang in 33, soon I in righteousness shall see Him as He is. And I'll be satisfied. But already they. And soon all of us in the body, soon all of us also in the body, that precious body, that Tuesday morning, you're going to put in the grave and then leave. That body will be raised from the dead because that body too was united to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was just sleeping then. He is just sleeping now. Sleeping. That's what the text says to emphasize the reality that you mustn't ever imagine death in the body to be permanent. You lie down, children, to take a nap this afternoon for a little while. You have no doubts that you're going to wake up from that nap and come back to church tonight. You just go to sleep. And when we take the bodies of our loved ones to the grave in an honorable Christian burial, we lay them down to sleep with a sure and certain confidence that someday soon, very soon, they will awake in the body too. Saints will. Saints will. Not those who have no interest in being holy, but saints. Now be very clear about this last point, very briefly. A saint isn't someone who's perfect. A saint isn't someone who measures up to the standards of the Roman Catholic Church so that one in a million perhaps is considered a saint and then made a saint. That's not what a saint is. A saint isn't someone who's perfect. It's someone who's holy, who hates sin, 
every day, is humbled by the reality of his own sin, and who loves righteousness every day and wants to be godly as Christ is godly. That's a saint. He struggles with sin every day. He hates sin. He has but a small beginning. And then be very clear in the second place about this restricted blessing that is not because they're saints that they're resurrected. Never imagine that for a moment, that God will raise you up because you were a saint. No, God will raise you up because you are united to His Son. Because united to His Son, His Son's righteousness is your righteousness. His Son's life is your life. It's because of Christ and only because of Christ. Don't ever say, He's going to raise me because I'm a saint. But do remember that it's only the saints who are going to be raised. And what you aspire for now, to be like Jesus, to be with Him, to be close to Him, to put away all sin, put it all away, what you aspire to now, soon and very soon, you will have in perfection, absolute perfection. No sin, no sorrow, no death, no crying, no tears, and all God in Jesus Christ. What a blessing restricted to those who are in Christ. Now is Christ risen and become the first fruits of them that slept. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for the promises of Thy Word, the testimony of this passage, and the great blessing for all those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Father, bless the hearts of the saints who mourn, are cast down, are wounded, are troubled, May they see Jesus. And seeing Jesus, may they be glad. And may all of us rejoice with exceeding great joy for the saints who've gone on before us, who now say we are satisfied. Lord, give us a good day. And forgive our sins for Jesus' sake. Amen.